The Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I'm Yagamalark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are actually coming to you from two separate locations today. This is our first time trying a distance podcast because we, as like most of the world, have been affected by this lovely coronavirus that is, you know, everywhere. Yeah, it turns out the world is insane and driving across town to sit in a small room with someone else and stare at each other closely while talking didn't seem like the way to go. Not so much. Not so much. And and especially because in this electronic age, there are ways of doing it like we're doing it right now. Now it's it's I don't get to hang out in the same room as my buddy Thumbs or my buddy Oni and, you know, chill and have all those moments. We're just going to be doing one continuous stream this time around without any real stops. So this is as close to live as I think we're going to get until we start going and like doing live streams at events, I think. Oh, my God, that'd be amazing. That's kind of my idea. Definitely want to give a shout out to Yui, my Squire Yui. Always like to brag that they're a Squire. Absolutely. They are our editor anyway, so they already do so much work for us. And uh, Malark and I are really good at a lot of things, but when it comes to technology, we're both kind of Luddites. Yeah. So they were the ones that set it up that, that this was even an option for us. So we super appreciate it. Uh, I know they were a little worried about the sound being different, but... yeah. It... It is what it is. You guys understand. You're a nice audience. It and it's and it's fantastic. You know, and 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 again, they have just been they they edit for us week after week, and they do a great job. And then uh, they're also making sure that we can continue recording, even though the whole world is is slightly different at the moment. So yeah, I'm I'm appreciative because I love this show. I love doing this show, and I love the fact that we're able to keep doing it. So thank you so much, Yui. Your efforts are always appreciated. Well, and they do it on top of everything else they're doing. They're taking over as a realm leader right now. I'm going to stop bragging, but I just wanted to do it enough that they're going to be a little uncomfortable when they're editing this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm dad. I have to. I can't help myself. Uh, anyway, hey man, so. it's, it's you're you're proud of your people. I, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I like I said, I'm just glad we get to keep doing the show. I'm I'm that nerd that uh, in school actually liked doing book reports. Oh yeah, you know, and so I was very disappointed after I graduated from college and realized, or I, I didn't graduate from college, but after I you know stopped attending university and I realized that nobody was going to care about my book reports anymore. So thank you to everybody who's listening to this for validating my need to constantly talk about books. I I lived with you around that time, and yeah, you would just give impromptu book reports. Just you'd come downstairs and you'd be like, I read this thing. And now we're going to discuss it. I'd be like, I don't know what that is. And you're like, that's not important right now. <laughs> you will by the end of this conversation. Again, uh, we're, we're continuing to podcast despite the fact that we acknowledge the reality of the situation. There's a lot of people who are scared right now. There's a lot of people who are, you know, living in a way that they didn't expect to. You know, I'm an introvert. I kind of don't leave my basement and kind of have my nose in my books at all times anyways. So my life isn't really being that affected at the moment, like, like directly, personally, my life is not being that affected i on the other hand work at a grocery store right right and it is terrifying i mean i'm lucky i work in the back i don't interact with customers much but it is it, it's surreal i have worked at this place for almost six years and i have never seen the store like this before i'm sure it's just a ghost town in there right now 
Uh, it varies. It's either a ghost, like the shelves are a ghost town, but there's people everywhere being like, I would like to buy $2,000 worth of bulk supplies right now. How's that sound? <laughs> we're like, that's, that's so many bulk supplies, man. That's, that's the nature of the thing. We don't know how long it's going to go on for, and, and everybody's just trying to prepare the way that they can. So I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way to do it. Um, again, this is this is new for most of us. This is The thing that I keep thinking about, I someone else had this thought. And I, it, it stuck with me. So I, I'm just, I didn't want to sound like it's me being really original. Thank every artist you know. Oh, yeah. For getting you through this quarantine. Scientists and farmers and all of the people who are going to like save our bodies. Great. Doctors, the doctors. Yes, doctors. Absolutely. Thank every doctor. Don't hug them right now. That would be uncomfortable. But like. But definitely show some love to your doctors and your nurses and your techs because like they're they're at ground zero. Elbow bump or something like that. Like give them a Vulcan salute. But the, the artists are what are going to get our souls through this. Like eight weeks alone or with minimal contact with people, what's going to get you through is the movies. It's going to get you through is the books. It's going to get you through the podcast, which sounds like I'm being like, I am going to get you through this, which is... We're going to do everything we if can. If that's true, great. We're going to hopefully be one contribution amongst everything yeah. else that's going on, because I know that I'm, I'm listening to a bunch of podcasts right now and playing my video games and watching movies. And, and again, I'm, I'm just thinking about all the, all the people that put their effort, their lives, their sweat, their blood into making that possible. And, oh yeah, uh, our sanity will be preserved because because of the the folks among us who have who have been putting these things out for us. Well, and the other thing I was thinking of along those lines is, you know, with right now it's con season, convention season, and everything's been canceled. Yeah, everything. So if you can, a lot of people are losing a good source of their income, and I'm sure that you probably are too if your work is shut down. So like, I'm not saying, you know, put yourself in trouble, but if you do have a couple extra bucks to toss toward an artist, this would be a very good time to do it. Absolutely. And and I, I know that there's a, a lot of, I've seen a lot of artists here in town, musicians especially who have, you know, because the, the bar scenes are closing down and they're not able to be doing concerts right now are doing live streams of their shows. And so that's really cool. I, I got added to a page that was just people doing live streams and they're planning to set up like a 24 hour period where it's just there's a band playing at all times so I'm like, yeah it's well, beautiful that's beautiful i i feel like we're seeing the absolute best and the absolute worst of humanity right now because on one hand you have people being pretty pretty scared and pretty selfish in some occasions when when they feel threatened but in the other token you have these community groups that are popping up that are making sure that the least fortunate and the the most uh vulnerable among us are are looked after and protected so uh, as usual humanity expresses its true colors in a crisis I think it's so important to actually look at those, the good side too, and not just the bad, because it's so easy to have sensationalists. That person just bought 400 rolls of toilet paper. And I'm exaggerating, but not by as much as you would think. But there's also the people who, when they have bought that was 400 rolls of toilet paper, they go to their church or to their local YMCA or to whatever other charitable organization they're a part of and make sure that it's being distributed to vulnerable people. Yeah, or, you know, people who have reached out to me and still just being like, hey, bud, like, just making sure you're doing okay. How are you, like, because the world is scary right now. Yeah, yeah. While we're maintaining our social distancing, we also have the means by which to look after each other. So do a little bit of both. It's all about balancing. We got to we gotta continue being a good community to one another and looking after each other. But in the same token, we got to make sure we protect ourselves. Don't hug anyone right now. I think it's like six feet the CDC recommends between you and other people. As much as you can. 
When we canceled practice, the running joke was, no, we don't have to cancel practice. We can just do only spears and archery. See, I would almost be in, intrigued by that, except that, you know, I'm, I'm also, I'm not a germaphobe necessarily, but I have no desire to join the trend. You know, I don't, I don't have the need to be like, oh yeah, I got, I got it when it was going around. Like I, I, I would be okay skipping it personally. Yeah. Any kind of foam combat sport, especially since it's, you know, it's March, we're still indoors and here in Montana, that's pretty much just 15 to 20 people sweating on each other. Like yeah. if you want to make it as gross sounding as possible. Yeah. No, you're right though. You're right. <laughs> Actually kind of on this for this episode though, I was going to say, cause we're, we're talking about nothing but depressing stuff here. I'm sorry. And again, we just wanted to address the, the elephant in the room. We know that this is on just about everybody's minds. I mean, everything I've been watching, everything I've been listening to, this is what people are talking about. So we just wanted to make sure that we may live here in Montana, but we're being affected by it too. So we're with you, whether you're here in America or, or in Europe or Asia, Africa, South America, Australia, hell, even Antarctica. I would love it if someone was just hanging out in Antarctica with the penguins listening to the art of wargaming. That would... I think I could retire successfully. That would that delight point. me. Like, yeah, that would truly delight me. It's my mission now. to get. We got to start advertising in Antarctica. <laughs> got to win over those science bros. Uh, last week when we were kind of talking about where we were going to go, we were talking about that this week we're going to talk about sieges. So it's going to be a little bit more 40k oriented. There's still some good stuff for Belagarth. But sieges is not a heavy thing when you're on, here's this field, and once everyone's dead and there's not much in the way of walls... Yeah, we don't do a whole lot in the way of sieges. Again, certain things, like if you go to any of the Montgomery Bell Ranch events over in Tennessee, either Beltane or Equinox, they get a castle set up, and so some of this actually matters a little bit more out there. But in the West, I, with the exception of some very rickety hay bale formations, you don't see fortifications. Yeah, I've seen some stuff, but not anything in the way that we could really set up, really properly simulate a siege. Right, right, right. Right. So uh, it, I, we thought it was kind of fitting that all of this coronavirus thing is like really starting to hit. And at the same token, we're talking about sieges, which when you're prepping for a siege, when you're prepping for quarantine, they actually have a lot of similarities. So it's, it's actually kind of topical that we're, we're talking about this today. And then instead of a, a battle report, we're going we're gonna to start mixing it up a little bit. We still want to talk about something from history that is relevant to our topic or to our chapter. But every now and then we're going to talk about something that isn't a strict battle. We'll talk about maybe a campaign or a commander specifically. And today we're going to be talking about a unit formation. So stay tuned till the end. This was actually suggested to us, a listener that we picked up from Lorehammer. So thank you again, uh, guys at Lorehammer. I, I listened to the episode. You guys gave us a shout out recently and that just, I mean so much. Again, this uh, this cat Mark and, and Eric, like these guys, I've been listening to them for years at this point. So to hear them talk about my show on their show, I, I, I may have fangirled just just a little bit. I'm not that far in yet. I listened to the first couple episodes after you told me that you had communicated with them. Um, I really enjoyed the orc one. I, orcs are my favorite Warhammer thing. So that was well done. And like with most, they started off really good and then they just get better. Like their, their, their technique just gets better and better and better. And until like, I mean, if you're listening to their episodes now, it's like a, a polished news service. Like they're just, they're on top of their game, man. And Oh yeah. I mean, even just listen to our early episodes versus where we are now. Oh, there's always progress. There's always progress. So I guess, again, thank you to uh, the, the cast of Lorehammer for, for thinking of us and for holding us in such regard that you talk about us on your show. That really means a lot to us. And welcome to any Lorehammer fans who've made the jump over and who are listening to us now we uh, very much appreciate your listenership and we hope that you'll enjoy the show and if you like 40k and you 
don't listen to Lorehammer yet, this is a great time to do it. Yeah, we do like our military science. So, and, and Lorehammer is all about like lore, like good, good, solid lore for 40k. Like they, they know things that uh, hardcore nerds that have been in it for 30 years don't know because like it's their job at this point to do this research. So I, I love, I love their shows. They're good stuff. But I think uh, without further ado, it might be time to get in some. I think it's time for some meat and potatoes. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna get into part seven of Machiavelli. So when it comes to a siege, there's obviously two sides to every siege. You have the besieged and the siegers on, on either side of it. And so Machiavelli actually provides a little bit of advice for both sides, as he would. And the advice is, of course, contrasting, which is to say that what he's advising for the people in the siege is exactly the converse of what he's advising for the people outside of a siege. Yeah, it turns out that getting in or getting out is very different requirements. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's it's all a game of cat and mouse. It's it's this trying to outwit your opponent and outwit the, the circumstances in such a way that's going to benefit you and not your opponent. And so we're going to talk a little bit about preparing for a siege and also then carrying out a successful siege. And then at the end of this meat and potatoes section, uh, Machiavelli in the chapter kind of goes over a summary where he has a bunch of quotes that are kind of recapping the major ideas of this work that we've just talked about. And so in that same vein of thought, we're going to kind of go over some of the big points, not obviously in too much detail, because we've done the last six episodes on this material, but just to kind of do a quick recap on on what... Yeah, the epilogue. Yeah, the epilogue. To, to start things off, we're going to talk about what you do to prepare for a siege, which again, like we said, is a little bit like preparing for a quarantine because you're going to be in of doors for a long period of time. There's something outside that you want to keep outside. And so the idea is to do as much as you can to prepare and to make sure that the the stay within your own walls is going to be as comfortable as possible. And one of the biggest ways you do this is to have contingencies, literal fallback plans. Oh yeah. No, it, sieges have been a part of since the beginning of history. Like as long as there have been cities, there have been sieges. Oh yeah. And they're always bad. Yeah, you've got walls, you got sieges. Yeah. And, and they never go well for, for either sides. They're always long drawn out affairs that nobody enjoys. That's, there's a reason that, that Sun Tzu recommends when, he's, when he was talking about in his text, he said, if you can, unless you've got uh, way more troops than your opponent does, just outright avoid a siege. Just don't even do them. Yeah, they're not fun. And and they take way more time. And if you're on campaign, they're going to distract you from what you actually need to do. So again, sieges, this is kind of a worst case scenario. Uh, again, much like what we're all experiencing at the moment. And so contingencies, having fallback plans and escape routes in mind is always a good idea. Uh, for instance, my family has property out in the woods. If things get really bad, we're probably all going to fall back. I'm not going to tell you where, mind you. No, that would, that would defeat the point <laughs> of the property in the woods. But we got we got fallback plans there. And much in the same way, if you're setting up on the field, we advised this before in previous episodes, but it's good to have at least one side with an edge or a wall to it, but you want to make sure that you have room behind you so that you can so you have room to maneuver. You never want to back yourself into a to an exact corner because then you have nowhere to go. And much in the same way, when you're building walls, you want to make sure that just because they knock down one wall doesn't mean that you don't have more walls or, or that, like, that's that's the only thing. Oops, the walls are down. We didn't have a backup. <laughs> There's no plan. That was the plan. Whoops. Because if you've got walls and they have artillery, chances are those walls are coming down. So you need to know what you're going to do in case that happens. 
Well, and by this point, Europe was really good at siege warfare. Oh, yeah. As we said, it's been around forever. They have gone from the catapults to the trebuchets to now... Cannons and bombards. Yeah, like the, the siege warfare starting in Machiavelli's time and continuing on from there. Siege warfare really got a big up with the invention of solid shot projectiles that were hurled by gunpowder. I mean, just the sheer destructive force of some of these cannons cannot be underestimated. And they were a big winning force at this time. Just a thought on the cannons and how powerful they were i was reading a book recently that took place a little later it took place after the napoleonic wars but it was you know similar technology of the time and they would talk about that the cannon would fire and the ball would be like if it you know didn't hit something to sure something like be bouncing and rolling down the field and cheeky boys who had just become soldiers and thought that they were big and impressive would be like i'm gonna kick the rolling ball being like it's lost all its power and lose the leg yep like impressive amount of power being generated by these things. Yeah, it's it's launching bowling balls made of iron. Solid metal. <laughs> um, just, just imagine how much having a bowling ball thrown at you by a regular person, and then I don't even have a number for how many times you should make it worse. No, it's uh, the, the physics here are, are fairly incredible. Again, you're, you're dealing with a, a massive amount of force coming at you with these cannons. So again, the, the wall was coming down. That wasn't, and, and, and in a lot of 40K cases, you know that your outer defenses will fail. Your, your armies are fairly evenly matched, which means that whatever your opponents brought hopefully is enough to do the job that they're intending to do. So you have to anticipate that your outer defenses will fail and have a backup plan for when that happens. That doesn't mean that you don't put the outer defenses there to begin with because a speed bump is a speed bump. Yeah, but if your whole plan is no, none of my people are going to die, then honestly, I don't know what to tell you by this late into learning war gaming. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to get through it without losing people. It's very rare that you get through a match of physical war gaming either, something like SEA or Belagarth or Ampguard, without losing anybody on your team. That's something to rejoice over whenever you get through a match and you don't lose anybody because it's fairly rare. Oh, yeah. So speaking of surviving, though, there's a number of things that we can do to make sure that we are more prone to survive during a siege. The first thing is that nothing should be done in a disorganized manner. Clear communication and clear planning should be done by all people who are involved in the siege because if not, if everybody's not on the same page, things are going to get overlooked. And this is a high crisis, high critical situation. Yeah, if panic starts in a besieged city... That, that can be the end right there. Even a small panic. Which is one of the reasons that Machiavelli recommends that like the civilian population be kept indoors during a siege. Uh, for one thing, that means that the army can move freely throughout the city without having to worry about crowds of people being in the way. And it also means that people are going to be less prone to panic in large numbers, which is... is very, there's been so many sieges that have been lost because the people got scared and started stampeding and, and maybe opened the gates or or even just uh, started killing themselves or soldiers in their, in their panic, which isn't good. That's you're doing the exact opposite of surviving at that point. That's that stress level is taken to a point that is going to harm everyone. So having a good plan, making sure that everything is organized is is a very good idea. It's the same thing with, with what we're prepping for with quarantine as well. Making sure that you've got a plan with your household uh, of, of, of what's going to happen and how, protoc how what protocols are going to be in place. It's important. It's very important that everybody be on the same page. One of the big things 
about preparing and, and being organized is making sure that you fortified against hunger and an early organized assault. These are the two things that, that will break most, most sieges, are hunger itself and then an organized early assault that just overwhelms your defenses. And so making sure that you're prepped for either of these situations, for the case of hunger, making sure that you have adequate stores of everything that you're going to need to feed your, and water your, your populace is important there. And then making sure that you... Hunger is always the super horrific one oh, yeah. to me. Oh, yeah. Like, because this is one that if you don't have an out, if you don't have someone coming to save you, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, hunger's the thing that's going to get you. And there is never, I've never read a story about a siege without just horrific food problems. And it almost always comes down to cannibalism. And, and very, because, because very, very few large population centers are self sufficient when it comes to food, with the exception of Masada, where they had like their own internal farming systems and could have persisted for a long time long time against the Romans, most cities rely on the surrounding areas to supply them with their food. The farms are located outside of the city walls. And this is fine for organizational times in peace, but when this war thing becomes an issue, suddenly your food source is outside of the walls. And that's an issue. It's remarkable the ways that throughout history people have decided to try and deal with the fact that, like, we might have to eat somebody. Vercingetorix was the... I'm not going to say he was the biggest opponent Caesar ever had during his Gallic campaigns, but he was like top three. He he's one of the ones that we remember beyond just having an awesome name like Verking Gedorix. Yeah. No, he was he was definitely a thorn in the side. It helped that he had been trained by the Romans, so he knew how they thought. He'd been trained, and he made good use of his hill forts, and uh, he did a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about in in this chapter. But what I was going to say is one thing, because they're locked up in this hill fort, and they're like, this is going to be terrible. And one of his generals is like, you know, we should start feeding the troops people now, so when it becomes dark times and like that's all that there is that they don't have the trauma of oh my god we've just started eating people they're used to it by then and it is a a rather horrific thought to think of that being a necessity and and that was just something considered like oh well we know it's going to come up so we might as well deal with it now it also kind of traces back to an earlier chapter where i talked about you are not the main person in command but you are like the advisor to the person in command right it is part of your job to come up with the crazy ideas because it might work. Yeah, and they can decide if they want to do that, or maybe that, but a little less cannibally. <laughs> Giving them that idea allows them to to confront all options a little bit. Yeah, no doubt. And 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 again, there's that that flexibility of ideas. It's going to let you think of the actual solution. If you're if you're just trying to think of what the conventional answer is all the time, the out of the box thinking, the the actual solution may escape you. But if you're trying to explore all options and you're going, no, that's crazy. No, that's crazy. No, that oh, that might actually work. You know, that that's that's a way, like you said, to open up the field. Uh, give yourself more opportunities for sure that said at no point in any wargaming should you ever go to the option we should eat some people hopefully you understand this already but just getting it out there because if you've planned so poorly that you need to eat somebody at a week-long event i i gosh i don't know what to tell you i don't know what to tell you yeah (laughs) go to jail (laughs) go 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 to jail do not collect two hundred dollars do not pass go (laughs) also don't play monopoly it's a terrible game oh yeah man i I talk about how magic the gathering destroys friendships monopoly like burns families down did you know monopoly was originally supposed like it was framed as a critique of capitalism and then when the 
the Parker brothers uh, kind of stole it from the original inventor. They switched it around and, and made it look like they were, they were because like originally it was supposed to demonstrate that having the wealth in the hands of the few uh, was bad for the community as a whole. That was the whole point of the game. And then they got rid of that because they are obviously not down with that particular idea set and, and changed it to the monopoly that we now know. That doesn't surprise me, but it's... It's the most capitalist thing I've ever heard, I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure. You take a, a game bashing capitalism and make it pro-capitalism while disenfranchising <laughs> the original owner. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That's also the Parker Brothers in a nutshell. Anyways, we're not here to discuss politics, though. Oh, whoops. So, so, so one of the things that you could do to prepare against this early organized assault that Machiavelli had talked about is to keep a tight watch on all approaches, even especially the approach that you're like, they'll never come from that direction. There have been so many cities, so many fortified positions that have fallen from the impossible direction. Because like you said, with the off-the-wall ideas, uh, not necessarily thinking cannibalism here, but thinking just, just, just in terms of unconventional tactics, they'll do something that isn't expected. If they're never going to come from that way, just narrative like from a purely storytelling concept it's got to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's got to happen. So make sure that you have a type. Sun Tzu says, if you defend equally in all places, you are equally weak in all places. And I agree with that. But in the same token, you cannot leave yourself blind anywhere because then you're really, really, really weak in that in that area. If there's one thing we've talked about more than anything else, probably in Machiavelli relating to like foam fighting, it is counterflankers save lives. Counterflankers save lives. And and this is the same thing. Like, they are going to come from where you're not expecting. Legendarily, the Battle of Thermopylae ended because the Persians found a way around the hot gate. It's a lot harder to hold the hot gates from two directions than it is one direction. And, and that's probably apocryphal. It probably never happened. They just had, you know, over a thousand times more people. Still, like, we're still talking about that you know 2500 years later like take the lesson and make sure you watch the approaches because again thermopylae is a great example and there there are a ton of other great examples of that of that same idea where so uh, you can take the very beginning of world war ii in the same idea you had the maginot line across the north of france there was a heavily fortified series of forts and they expected the nazis and they were prepped yeah and they, they expected the nazis to come from that direction because it was wide open they knew that the nazis had a lot of good tank warfare and so they were like okay germans are coming from this direction we're going to prep in this direction and then Godarian goes through the Ardennes and just shows up on their black back flank they weren't expecting an assault through a mountainous forested area and that's why that's exactly where it came from that's what Hannibal did yep with crossing the Alps almost in the in a very similar area too of the world so just kind of watch that that whole like Switzerland Alpine region like that's that's danger zone man yeah, the only time an area is really unpassable is if it's a cliff or the edge of a world or the edge of a board in a wargaming thing. Like The Alps or the Ardennes are crossable. I think you're fairly safe with the Himalayas That's in most fair. places. That's that is a that is a mountainous wall. The other big thing, the, the, a huge consideration when when trying to manage yourself in a siege is trying to reach out and make contact with your allies. You don't want to be alone, um, and it's the same thing when you're in this quarantine. Again, we're not trying to make actual physical contact because again, social distancing. But in the same token, making contact with your allies, making sure that you've got that good communication, trying to render aid as you can, is the best idea that you can do, especially if you're the one <laughs> being besieged. Uh, allies are a, a very good thing. 
because they can do one of two things. They can either get you the supplies that you need to, to last the siege, or they can either or they can break the siege, either by getting you out or attacking the force that is besieging you, by that way alleviating. Suddenly they're having to like deal with a siege while sieging someone, and that's awful. Sometimes they do it extremely well. We talked about, uh, I can't remember which episode it was in, but there was a battle where, where Caesar basically fights a siege from both sides and manages to do so successfully, but he's he's one of the few that actually manages to pull that off because that's, that's that's a difficult spot to be in, no doubt. Yeah, as I talked about before, I'm not a big fan of Caesar, but I'm super impressed yeah. by Caesar. Yeah, he's, like, he's definitely one of those people that you can look at his achievements and be like, you know, you, you did some cool things. I don't think I'd like you. I don't think I'd want to drink with you or, or really be around you. You seem like a rather into-yourself person, but... I feel like Machiavelli would have really liked to hang out with I think I would have liked to hang out with Machiavelli. Like... <laughs> maybe not read read his notes or his letters all the time but just like hang out with him would be pretty cool just the experience of it yeah it'd be worth a try. i sat down with machiavelli it should be noted that when you're preparing for this siege that anything that we were talking about your farms and your main sources of industry being out away from the city anything that you cannot bring to your uh, your main stronghold with you should be destroyed it should be de- denied to the enemy this is a, a very important trick and one that was used by the Russians against two very notable commanders. I was going to say this is pretty much just the Russian yeah. strategy. Well, this not is. just the Russians, but they they've done it historically to the to one of the best effects because they also have the Russian winter to add on top of, you know, denying yep. supplies over this vast uh, area. Both Napoleon and Hitler were like, "Okay, like this is fine. We'll attack Russia." And they're like, "Well, we're just going to burn our crops and let you freeze to death." The only culture I can think of that this didn't really work on with Russia was the Mongols or the Japanese. Oh yeah, but they were they were used to cold the Mongols already and then they were like this is awesome your rivers are frozen solid you just gave us a pathway this is easier everyone else is digging out of these like 20 foot snowbanks and we are just like ice skating down it worked out. It worked out. The Mongols, the masters of, of yep. taking whatever situation were in front of them and like using it to their advantage. But yeah, uh, destroying destroying everything uh, around your your base is is a good idea. Again, you you can rebuild after the the siege is over. After everything has gotten better, you can then rebuild. But denying your opponent this advantage is extremely important. Farms can come back. Farmers, it's a lot harder to do. Oh yeah, that too, that too. But then the the, the last idea that he wanted to touch on in terms of preparing for a siege is how you make your position strong. And your position can be strong by either one of two things. It's either strong by nature, by the nature of where it is, or it's strong because of industry. You made it strong. And so nature can make a position strong either by having it surrounded by a river or a marsh that makes it really difficult to approach. The hot gates like we talked about. Or it could be situated on rock or a slopey mountain. And so elevated or or, or surrounded by by craggy ravines or or anything like that. Something that gives a, a terrain advantage around it. And then by, by the industry standard, the walls are a big part of this. When we think of a walled city, we often think of just like a square, basically, of these flat walls. But that design is extremely flawed because those walls are very easy to bring down with dedicated cannon fire. So much more difficult are walls that kind of twist on themselves, that have recesses and redoubts within them that make it more difficult to get a, a, a solid volley on a particular area. Because a flat wall, you can just basically line up a bunch of artillery across from it and be like hit that spot and they can all hit the same spot yeah we talk about like it, it's literally a phrase in our language uh, hitting the broadside 
of a barn. It's the same thing with the you know, broadside of a castle. Right. If it's a big, complicated castle with readouts and stuff and maybe some more wall behind that wall, if you can, two walls is Curved. great. You, you've got a, lot of, like, a lot of curves to it, yeah, which is the idea of a readout. Like, um, I, this, this has nothing to do with wargaming, but it, it has to do with the same idea. I was playing this Jurassic World Evolution game this last summer, and I had bred some dinosaurs that were just, they were killers, and they could, they were they, getting, they could break out of enclosures extremely easily, and it was getting difficult to get to people to want to come to my park with the crazy, insane, strong, intelligent dinosaurs. And so what I ended up having to do mm-hmm. was do, like, crenellations on my walls, on the enclosures. And so basically what I did is I'd built the square, like you're thinking, and then I'd take and, and put, like, a, a half circle on the outside. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this half circle that's going, and you've got, like, half circle, half circle, half circle. And so where one hits, the next one begins. And so you basically have a wall in front of a wall, and then you do it on the other side. That's called a triple crenellation, where you've got this these, like, layers to your wall so that even if they break through uh, one of these layers, you're going to have another layer behind it that's at a different angle so that you have to switch the angle that the artillery is coming at to actually be effective. But because you've only got the opening you well, do, and then on... it just it takes a lot longer. You have to destroy a lot more wall in order to make an actual breach uh, when you're using crenellations and readouts. On top of that, and we're going to talk a little bit about like what happens with breaches, but you can put stuff in front of the walls too. And like this won't help against the artillery so much, but it'll help against everything else. You know, it, it's a classic look of castles and battles and stuff of the like spike sticking out or the moat like the most classic look of all time uh and well machiavelli actually kind of recommends against a moat for the for the same reason that you uh mentioned with the mongols in russia because certain times of year the moat just is completely ineffective okay so i'll stick with the the you know spiky wood planks instead but like the the idea is states are awesome Anything that makes it just harder for them to get to your wall, even if they do make a hole or before they make a hole or after they make a hole. But again, speaking about contingencies, you have to assume that they will make a hole. You have to assume that your wall will come down. And there's two preparations that you can make to kind of prepare for this. The first one is to dig a ditch on the inside of your wall network. Now, I I know that the temptation is to dig one on the outside, but if you can only dig one ditch, you want it to be on the inside, and here's why. Your walls are likely going to come inside. That's where the the force is going from the, the shot, and so when the wall comes down, it collapses inwards. What that normally does is it builds up a large rubble pile that the attacking army can then use as cover to breach where your your castle. They can come up and basically use the rubble to, to get a foothold and come inside. What Machiavelli recommends is digging the ditch on the inside so when the rubble falls inwards, it falls into the ditch, which means that it doesn't actually block the line of sight from your shooters at the people coming inwards. So this is, this is an effective way of prepping. And then you also want artillery that are, is situated on the inside of the wall that is pointed there. So when the breach occurs, you've got artillery waiting to just have a clear field of fire at the enemy army. Yeah, the the breaking wall is not good, but it also guarantees that you know, in theory, you know. I mean, again, have defenders elsewhere. This is, we cannot drive that home enough this episode. But you, you know where the primary part of the attack is coming from, and you can aim in a very low, dedicated area and have a good chance of hitting someone. And you've got time to prep, too. That's the other thing, because normally it, it's not just one cannon ball that fells a wall. You've got at least several hours worth of concentrated fire at one spot. You know where they're hitting. You know where they're going to come from so you can 
situate your artillery appropriately. There's a game, Elder Scrolls Online, where I've seen this done to great effect, um, because you've got these forts that are littered across all of Cyrodiil, and the whole point is to breach into these forts, much like Machiavelli's talking about, take them over, and, and use them in your own little empire that you're building here in Cyrodiil. But I've absolutely seen people that, like, if they're being out-sieged and they know a wall is going to come down, they're going to put up a bunch of counter-siege on the inside of that wall so that when the wall does come down, suddenly you've got a bunch of ballista coming through the breach at you, making it difficult to get through. To take it to a much more ridiculous area, there was uh, Mother Treasure Island, a scene where they're (laughs) charging around, charging in, burst through, open a door, and there's just, like, a cannon being lit and a smiling Muppet, and they go, "Uh uh-oh, that's exactly what you want to happen. Yep. If they're going to get through that door, you want the Muppet with the cannon. Exactly. Right exactly. So, yeah, the next time you're you're getting besieged, make sure that you've got a Muppet and make sure you've got a cannon. It's a, it's a solid That's just good life advice, It man. is. It is. So that's preparing for a siege. Again, you're, you're in for a long haul, but if you've, if you've got the food that you need, you've got your organization, you've got your allies sorted out, and your position is as fortified as it can be, you've got good chances. You've got good chances. So again, kind of the same idea for surviving a quarantine. Make sure you've got food. Make sure you've got your contingencies in place. Make sure you're chatting with your allies. You've got a, a system of support. And then just be organized. And be, and be prepared for the long haul. It's going to suck. It's going to suck. It's going to suck. But the, on the other side is, is the idea of doing a siege itself. Because being sieged is not fun. But being the siegers is also not fun either. Because you are just as isolated, but you are also vulnerable. The person who is inside has the advantage of walls. You are on the outside, vulnerable to counterattack and just constant artillery barrage. So how do you how do you deal with this? How do you do a siege successfully? Because again, both both. both both Machiavelli and Sun Tzu were like, avoid it. But if you have to do it, how do you do it? You know, there's a couple ways. What is the, in theory, the ideal safest ways is if you can just starve them out. But that is assuming that you are in control of the wider area. If you have to siege a city and you don't control the wider area. That's dangerous. If, you know. It's a dangerous gamble. Alexander the Great, for example, had to siege several cities in the Persian Empire. And he didn't necessarily own the Persian Empire yet. That is, that's not something where you can spend the next three years letting these people slowly starve to death. Nope. Or or in the and that can take years. That is not exaggeration. Or in the case of Caesar when he was in Gaul, you know, he was in hostile territory and anytime he was doing a siege himself, he was a, a target for other warlords to come in and, and come after. And so if you have to turn around and fight that other army that's coming. I mean, this is why we said that you wanted that other army to come if you're being sieged. If you have to turn around and fight that other army, suddenly all those people hiding behind the walls that really don't like you can attack from the other side. No matter what, you're going to get pinched. It's a rock in a hard place kind of situation, no doubt. Literally. Yeah, literally, in a lot of cases. So, I mean, honestly, the best thing you can do is assault before they can prepare. If you're able to to hit them before they're able to get their defenses up and before they're able to get fully fortified, that's honestly the ideal thing to do. Just avoid the siege, the protracted siege in, entirely, and, and hit them fast. Let's say that that's not possible. Let's say your enemy knows you're coming. Let's say they've had time to prep. Uh, okay, at this point, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do this without losing so much of your army that you're no longer able to effectively campaign because it's not worth worth it to win a battle and lose the war. You want this to add to the overall campaign. You were telling me about a, a video game you were playing. Yeah, uh, um, this Planetfall game that I've been playing, th- th- there's actually a, a good example of this. I was going against another player who had a very similarly sized army to me. I had sent a large army group north and a large army group toward the south. The army group in the north hit first, and I managed to take a city. He came at me with an army, I defeated it, and then he came at me with another larger army. I knew I was going to lose this this battle. Now, I still had my battle group in the south that it was untouched. It was still fresh. 
but I knew I was going to lose this battle in the north, so I wanted to make it count. I maneuvered in such a way that I was able to kill his commander. In order to defeat a player in Planetfall, you have to kill the commander and seize the capital. In that battle, I managed to kill the commander. I lost that battle, but the very next turn, I seized the capital and win the, won the war. And so what, he, what my opponent should have done is probably just pulled back and tried to consolidate somewhere to maneuver against my stronger force instead of wasting all of their strength against my weaker force and enabling me to kind of swoop in and get it with another force. So in the same mind, you want to make sure that you've got the long game in mind. Winning a, a particular engagement, or even like if you're in a game of 40k or a game of Belagarth or something on the field, winning in a, in a small engagement may not be as important as the large engagement. Your, your actions that you take, for instance, I may see that the archers are open, but I'm the person who's holding the center. Like me being in the center is keeping the opponent from coming through the center. If I break... If you go charge down those archers, you're it's done. Exactly. I've just I've just opened the way to the inner part of my line, so I get done hunting some archers, I turn around, my whole team's dead. Okay, cool. I, I We see this happen in the game uh, Kill the King a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, if so-and-so dies, your team loses, and you get into the weeds of the fight because it's a good fight, or because a bunch of stuff is happening, or you forget you're playing Kill the King. That's the one that happens the most for us. And then suddenly your king is too far away, and the war is over now. Yep. So you, you got to make sure that you've got the long game in mind. Make sure you've got that long war on your mind. And in the same token, if you do manage to breach your opponent's defenses, whether it's their walls, because in the same mind, uh, in terms of 40k, think about it in terms of not necessarily like an actual walled area, but if you're a shooting army, like I like to play with my admech, and you found yourself a nice well, like a lot of terrain, area that you get to set up in imagine yourself as being the person who is being sieged and that the whatever melee army or more aggressive army coming at you is the army that is carrying out the six or trying to carry out a siege so these these rules also apply in that situation we've got like a melee versus shooting army matchup the shooting army is almost always the one that is being besieged because they're the one on the back foot trying to, to keep the distance whereas the, the melee army is trying to close it they're the ones doing the siege and so these these rules very much apply to that situation as well but but like I was saying, if you do get a breach, if you're able to to hit their walls or hit their defenses in such a way that it causes destabilization, you want to ex use that breach to expand it to help others. Establish a foothold, basically, so that the rest of your army is able to benefit there. Because just, again, like we said before, just pushing through, going after the opportunity directly in front of you without worrying about what everybody else is doing, sacrifices that opportunity. You might be able to punch through that wall and get inside, but if you don't, if you haven't prepared for the rest of the There's army... There's a Muppet with a cannon on the other side. We've yes. Yeah, there's this. a Muppet like, with a cannon. You you have yeah. to be prepared Make, for that. So you got to make sure you establish that beachhead first. In in Belagarth, it, it's kind of interesting because the example I'm going to use is something that we've largely argued against doing, but is when one person like punches through the wall and like like literally pushes through the wall. And the only time you can really do that is if you know before the fight starts, you're like, all right, I'm gonna go, I'm I'm going to you know shield bash that wall as I'm dying and they deal with me. You know, Bob and Fred, you go take care of like that. If if they get through that one part of the wall and only one one person on that that shield wall collapses, that's hard to get through. But if you can use that advantage to then take out the guys to their left and their right, suddenly that hole is so much bigger, and your chances of surviving is just exponentially better. And you got a, and you have a lot uh, of more opportunities that have been presented by that rather than just being I've punched, I go through. No, you want to provide those opportunities to everybody else on your team too. Absolutely. But getting that breach early on isn't always possible. Let's say your opponent 
opponent has been well prepped and has these crenellations and redoubts and it's going to be a second or, or difficult to get that breach. How then do you go about handling the situation? This is Machiavelli. So of course at this point I'm, we're going to talk about some spies and treachery, some poison and subterfuge. And a little bit of math. Because uh, force is not always the, uh, the, the, the best way of getting someone out. For instance, if you can poison a water supply, siege is over. Right there and then. You can only live for three days without water. Uh, a lot less than that with poison water. There are so many stories, and we're not going to go into any of them because they're all gross, but so yeah. many stories of, uh, especially when catapults were still much more of a thing. Well, we have some dead soldiers or some dead cows or some dead whatever gross things. So let's launch them over the walls and hello, terrible. A little bit of bio-warfare. Yep, that's, that was absolutely used a lot before Geneva Convention type things. Spies are excellent too, trying to get somebody into the city to maybe prop a gate open or figure out where the weak spot is in the guard schedule or whatever. Uh, getting an inside person. Or if they can instigate that panic oh, that yeah. we were talking yeah, about get, earlier. Get a little bit of mass panic going on, for sure, for sure. If you get someone coming in being like, they have reinforcements coming, we're all gonna die. Like that's, that would be such a good boon for you to have. Whether you have the reinforcements right, coming right. or not but yeah so this 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 idea of kind of doing the underhanded thing of course is a very machiavelli thing to suggest a, a, a little bit harder to replicate in war gaming but we figured we'd include it in here just because it's it's a, a pretty big um, uh, part of it I, I suppose if you're playing an imperium army and you're using assassins getting an assassin inside your uh, your opponent's fortifications that can cause some serious issues yeah, sieges, war gaming, they don't come across a lot unless it's a game specifically designed for like a siege. Right. But we're talking about Machiavelli. We're gonna we're gonna talk about some sieges and some spies. Let's be yep, honest. Yeah, it's here. a very Machiavelli thing to talk about. As we were talking about when the Mongolians and Machiavelli agree on a subject, you know it's gotta be good. And one of the things that is in, in both of their lexicons is the idea of a feigned departure. Oh yeah. Being like, Oh gosh, I guess we lose. We're just gonna go and then you leave and then you come back. Uh when when they've dropped their guard. You can do this in a in a one-on-one -on -one fight too. The Mongolians did this on every level of the battlefield. The, we've already talked about the Mongolians doing this with the, uh, you know, we're going to run away and then we're going to turn around really fast because we're horse archers and man, we're really good at that. But they did it with sieges too. They would, you know, take out a city and then leave and the people would be like, well, that was terrible. Well, we got through it and two days later, they'd be like, hey, we're back. I've definitely seen T-Bird use this to his advantage. Uh, one of the last Chaos Wars I went to, I remember that he had basically picked up this tactic of coming up to you and like adopting in a very aggressive ready stance bouncing at you a little bit and then like dropping his his stance completely like dropping guard and like turning his back and like trying to walk away and then the second that you like because he's gotten you amped up by coming at you you c come at him he's timed this little move to spin around and catch you off guard like it was it was beautiful when i saw him do it the first time i'm, I'm hoping it doesn't work on me anymore yeah we we talked about it before if someone suddenly drops their guard if suddenly someone is like hey we're going that's a that's trap. a trap Admiral Atbar style trap. Avoid that. But yeah. It's if, if it's too good to be true, it probably, probably is. Probably is. Uh, but if you can make him think that it's too good to be true that you're leaving, that's great for you. Because then they're going to open some gates. They're going to come out and try to find some food. They're going to they're going to drop their guards, like their actual like guards down a little bit. And then that enables you to come back and basically attack before they prepare. You've started this whole process over again and you're and you're attacking them before they're prepared, which is excellent. If you're not able to do that, you got to be able to cut off that relief. Remember how Ma Ma Machiavelli was just saying that if you are being besieged, you want to try to make contact with your allies and, and get some, some sort of supplies or communication going. Your job, if you're 
on the other side of that is to keep it from happening, obviously. You want to make sure that there's no supplies getting through and that there's no communications going to anybody. No help is coming. That's that's an ideal place to be in. And then the last thing that you should know is that walls can be brought down with more than just artillery. Undermining has been something, even before the invention of gunpowder, they were undermining walls, digging tunnel systems under opposing walls and collapsing them. It's a brilliant process. Time-honored strategy. And then they got gunpowder and it became even easier so with the with the use of sappers and tunnels you can even breach without having to really batter the wall down specifically and that can that can make it a little bit more unpredictable as to where you're going to hit because if you've been shooting the same spot on a wall with artillery for three days it's pretty obvious you're going to come through there the the two most kind of famous examples of this that leap to mind one is fictional and worked and the other was non-fictional and didn't work so you know variety is um first of all the the like marathon runner orc from uh lord of the rings two towers in uh the battle of helm's deep no doubt yeah runs in blows up the wall looks awesome the special effects still hold up later i will largely stand by lord of the rings 20 years later Heck but yeah. not the point of this. seriously those are 20 years uh, old oh my god they can uh, ish 15 years oh, old oh uh, still feel old they came out when we were in high school i buddy. know <laughs> they uh that wall blew up they had to fall back. I mean, luckily, Helm's Deep had like 15 other places they could fall back to, which is a thing that we've talked about here. Contingencies. But that wildly changed the battle. And then the... Th- Absolutely. The, the place where it didn't work, but when we talk about, you know, undermining and blowing stuff up... Oh, God, I'm blanking his name now. The the 5th of November guy. Uh, Fox. Uh, guy Fox. Tried to go under Parliament. Guy Fox, right? Yeah. Yeah, Guy Fox. Yeah, he, he tried to burrow under Parliament and blew up Parliament, and it didn't work out, but it is one of the most famous let's make a black powder explosion stories that we kind of have in our yeah. history. Oh, yeah. So, uh, again, this is not a situation you're likely to find yourself in wargaming, but uh, just in case you're ever finding yourself against a walled city and not knowing how, remember sappers. Sappers are a thing. The closest I can think of is if you, like, you know, lit a cherry bomb and tossed it under the table, but no, no one's that winning seemed, in that No, that's situation. a terrible Don't idea. That. But that's what we have for sieges. That's uh, that's basically how you prepare for a siege and how you carry out a successful siege, according to Machiavelli. Uh, and again, when it comes to Warhammer, this can be applied to a shooting army such as Ad- Adeptus Mechanicus or uh, Tau against something like Tyranids or Orcs. You, you've got a very similar theory kind of going with uh, uh, the, the dynamic. So before we end our meat and potatoes section, there's just a, a little bit of a wrap-up to do, uh, kind of a summary that Machiavelli provides. There's no way Machiavelli was going to end this without hearing himself talk more about the stuff he just has been talking about for six chapters. Well, and, and he wanted to make sure that this would pass in a college course, because you can never get to the end of a college paper without doing a, a rewrap. That's just, uh, oh, totally. that's just a given. And in conclusion... And in conclusion, reserves are better than a wide front. This is something we talked about several times, but you don't want to stretch yourself too thin. It is better to have troops that are not actively engaged, but waiting to be useful in a, in a planned sort of way, than to spread yourself so thin that you can't support any of it. Whatever benefits your enemy harms you, and vice versa. Whatever benefits you harms your enemy whether politically or supplies or victory wise it's it's always a converse relationship between you and your opponent when it's one of you will die it really does become either or it's one of the only times that i really am like yeah that's the either or situation Mm -hmm. Uh, observation of enemy tactics and hard training make for an easier war don't want to go into anything unprepared and so knowing what your enemy is going to do knowing what kind of units they like to use or knowing what sort of stratagems or things uh, tactics that that are, are, are normal for them are very important 
and then also making sure that your troops are well-trained and can do exactly what you want them to do is equally important. And the best way you can really learn all of this is just be social, talk to people. Oh, God Squad, I don't really know that unit. I picked the unit that everyone in the West knows, so that was ridiculous. Yeah. But, uh, oh, uh, Outworld Empire, I don't really know that unit. Tell me about yourselves. And then, you know, actually learn about them because you're not mean. But remember what you learn. Yep, because uh, then it helps you it not only expand your own repertoire, but know how to fight more things or and, and more people and you never want to go, speaking of this preparation you never want to go to war unless you are sure of your army's courage that they that they're in it that they're motivated again not not as important for Belagarth or for uh, 40k because when you show up to a tournament you're choosing to be, choosing out, to be out there and your little plastic soldiers like they're always motivated that's what they're designed to do is go to war so they're always they're always in it my guardsmen are always ready to be on that field nature makes very few people brave. Discipline and training make many people brave. And this is a good point for people who are coming into especially physical wargaming. Very few people are good at it when they just start off. It's it's not something you very few most people flinch. Most people have terrible form. Most people do not have good body body mechanics. That's just most people are not good fighters when they start. I was not a good fighter when the, I started. The thing I tell people more than anything else and I'm like I I know I've told you this like six times, but stop doing this thing. Don't worry. I did it. Turkey Feathers did it. Mark mm -hmm. did it. Par does it. Did it. You know, all of us had to be trained not to do these things. But the training and the discipline is important. It should not be avoided just because it's not pleasant. I had a fighter once who was in really good shape. He was, you know, college, played sports, yada, yada, yada. And he was getting very frustrated because me, the slightly heavyweight bald guy that did not look that impressive, was just wiping the floor with him. And he's like, I, I should be doing better than this. And I'm like, look, man, okay, what's the thing that you do? And he's like, oh, I played baseball. I'm like, how long have you been playing baseball? He's like, oh, like 10 years. I'm like, okay, if we played baseball i wouldn't even know what was happening <laughs> you would just mop the floor with me but you are 18 i've been playing this game since you were three yep i know these things and you could just see him be like oh and that actually brings us to machiavelli's next point which is that discipline counts more than fury this this training this tech and this is something i tell my apprentices all the time is that technique is more important than anything else that's not to say that you shouldn't try to make yourself strong because strength is also very important in what we do strength and endurance it's not to say that you shouldn't try to make yourself faster because speed is absolutely important for what we do too but the foundation of everything is technique which is to say discipline uh because it counts way more than fury yeah a well executed shot is going to work better than a wild fast shot it's also going to be safer for everyone involved you're going to hit someone in the head a lot less yeah don't often. don't fight sloppy uh especially because we're not actually trying to kill each other we avoid face shots and that sort of thing yeah uh get your discipline Going back to uh, the, the, what we were talking about, ob observing enemy tactics and and making sure that you're training and that, and that counts for an easy war, you also want to train for certain situations against specific enemies. You know you're going against the Mongols, you need to train for a high-speed enemy that's going to be coming at you from multiple directions and using a lot of different weapon types. You're going against the Romans, you need to ha know how to fight a turtle formation, because they're going to use a, for a turtle formation. You're going against the God Squad, going against the Urukai, you're going against the Tyranids, you're going against the the adeptus mechanicus all of them have different things that they are more prone to doing and different tactics that, that kind of fighting is uh, evolves into so knowing your opponent is good and then mm -hmm. but you also have to like it's not just you the commander or you the the individual soldier that needs to know it's the whole army that needs to have trained for example a lot of the military bases in the united states were moved when we started engaging in places like vietnam 
now a lot of our training facilities are in really warm areas. Uh, we, we don't we don't have as many arid areas because there's not a whole lot of desert in in America. No, but you can still put stuff in like Arizona, New Mexico, and have you thinking a little more. And than... training in South Carolina is way better prep for uh, the. For, for the Middle East, for instance, which is where the, the majority of America's wars are at this point, then training in some place like Maine. You don't want to go to Maine and be like, oh, this is fine, and then get the, the shell shock of going into 120 degrees in the morning in uh, <laughs> in Iraq. You know, that's, it's a... Yeah, you, slight change there. Yes. So this is kind of what they're talking about when you want to, what he's talking about when he says training for specific situations and specific enemies. You don't want to pursue a routed enemy in a disorganized manner. Because like we had said before with these feigning departure, it might not be a route. Or there might be another enemy waiting there to, to pounce upon you. You don't always know. You always want to be organized. And so if your your opponent has just given flight all of a sudden, it's, it's probably best to regroup and go after them in an organized fashion. Whoever does not make provisions to live is defeated without steel. Which is to say that, remember those two episodes we kind of did on camp and camping preparation? You're, you're not going to even make it to the field if you don't do at least the minimum for that. If you're not eating and sleeping... It's the and... mistake that almost every person makes at their first Belagarth event. They're either overpacked or underpacked, yeah. and it's way worse if you're underpacked. Way worse to be underpacked, yeah. Because you, you want to make sure that you've got what you need to live for the weekend or the week that you're going to be out there. The most important one, like, not to go over, you know, the two weeks worth of episodes we did, the most important one, I think, is bring one more blanket than you think you need. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty important. Or, or again, like I said, if you're listening to us right now and you're like, you know, some of that got stuff got fun go back and listen to it like i intend on going back and listening to it before i go to my next event just being like what were my notes on this you know favoring one unit type over another restricts your favorable field options so if you've got all cavalry for instance you're going to be far more prone to being good on open planes than you are in anything that's forested or restricted if you're all infantry that's and everyone's going to want to fight you in a forest yeah area. yeah so it, it, the idea is if you're going to go really specified in one area, you need to understand that there's only going to be certain circumstances that you're going to be able to work in. A well-rounded approach is far better, using mixed units or a, or a mixed army. For instance, even with ADMEC, ADMEC is a, is a primarily shooting army. Even though the ADMEC are primarily a shooting army, they still have melee units, and it's good to have a few of those in there for the inevitable breakthroughs that you're going to have, for at the very least, just a delaying action, so that your big guns can reposition and be useful still. Oh yeah, with the orcs, you just put the lutas in the back and let them do some covering fire while your boys are... Uh... Very common morning job. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't fight unless necessity compels or there is an opportunity. Remember, in any fight, there's a chance to lose. Remember, in any fight, there you will lose people. You will lose material and men, all of which are expensive. And this is an easy one to be like, oh, this doesn't qualify for wargaming because we're all there to fight. But even even in the fight. Yeah, even actively in the fight. Like if I'm looking at a, a situation across the field and I'm like, there's there's no benefit to engaging right now. Don't. Wait, wait for a good opportunity. And this isn't to say that you should just delay until you're picked apart. But you don't want to move without there being clear benefits. And then on that same token, mix up your tactics. You don't want to become predictable in anything. If you always open with the same three shots, or if in, in 40k you always use the same combination of units and the same stratagems to open the game, people are going to get wise to that and they're going to be able to plan against it. You know, anything that Nick Nadavati does is so much less effective afterwards because when, when somebody like Nick Nadavati thinks of something, it's new, it's it's fresh, it's, it's something that other people have not yet seen. Is is this a Wargamer guy? Yeah, this is a, a, a Warhammer guy, one of the, one of the top 
probably the top Warhammer 40k player in in uh, the ITC. Um, but the thing is, everybody pays attention to Nick Nadavati. Everybody watches his games and his lists. And so after a Nick Nadavati victory, there's like a thousand people who are playing a Nick Nadavati army and using those tactics. They are so much less effective after they have been exposed like that. You know, man, that has to be stressful. Oh yeah, constantly trying to come up with new. I mean, that's that's the life of a commander. You think it's any different for an actual general? Like, I mean, it's, yeah, that's that's there's very actual true. people's lives on the line at that point. But it's yeah, it's that's a similar more stressful. Idea. Like that's constantly evolving meta all everywhere. And so the the last part of this is the sinews of war. Machiavelli describes the sinews of war, which are the things that make it up as being men, steel, money, and bread. So men being your soldiers, the men and women under your command who are serving, who are either like your little plastic models or the people in your unit, in your realm, the people that make up the, the army, the steel, the equipment that you take with you to, to fight the money that you use to get around and pay your soldiers, and of course bread, what the army marches on. That's 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 person. Machiavelli in in a nutshell right Bucky there. Really in a nutshell, yeah. So that was our meat and potatoes. And like we said, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, here in a minute when we go into our discussion about the pike and shot. So as we talked about at an earlier point in this podcast, uh, we were looking at what would be some good sieges to talk about, but they're all giant bummers. Yeah, there's not happy sieges. Like, uh, I mean, no, no battle is really all that happy necessarily, but there's no really even glorious sieges. They're all just kind of messy. Yeah, and as we talked about, people are starving, and it's it's just, it was a little much for us this week. And luckily, someone actually had an idea for us, or we got an idea off some thing that someone had messaged us about. Yeah, there was a, a fella, Carl Johnson, who, who recently became a listener of ours, who uh, wrote me to ask about the concept of pike and shot, which was a, a unit kind of composition that was very popular between the 1500s and the late t- 17th century. I actually thought that it'd be kind of cool to talk about. This is one fun for me just because... I really love the Landschnecht from this era, the Swiss mercenaries. Yeah, they're pretty cool. But I didn't know much of the, like, battlefield tactics. So I had not heard of Pike and Shot before you told me we were going to be covering this. So it was fun to research and learn a new thing. It's interesting that, like, this is one of those those developments, those military developments in history that is rather overlooked. It's not, it's kind of a a transition period between the, this traditional legion composition of just, like, a bunch of of melee uh, fighters and kind of combining the ideas and then uh, ultimately the evolution of the form w- with the, the modern warfare period. So I, I, it's it's easily overlooked, even though it was such a, a long period of history that this took place because it was so uh, such a transitory development. Yeah, we think of like, and then they had muskets and they knew what they were doing, but we didn't know what we were doing. There was two centuries of right, us figuring right. out even how to invent a musket. We were still using the arquebus, which is not a good weapon. Uh, not unless it's the, the transuronic arquebus of the Skitari. Which no, they did not uh, they, have. It's, it's, uh, they didn't. They didn't have transuronic uh, elements to, or I, I suppose they did, but they, you know, they weren't stable. From a creative standpoint, this is also kind of fun for us to do because we love covering battles and we know a lot of battles between the two of us, but having to come up with a new battle every week, we've been getting a little later and later in the week every week and we're like, oh God, uh, what's an interesting battle? Oh, have we done that one before? So being able to be like, instead of a battle, let's look at, you know, this combat 
format style, it it, it brings yeah. up new possibilities for the podcast for us to do. It does. And and again, it's still something history. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it's it, it still kind of uh, gets this the, the point across by using something real to talk about uh, what else we're talking about. Because when we're thinking about the army in terms of what Machiavelli is talking about, he's talking about the, the early developments of this same idea. So these these mixed units that he's envisioning, that's the, the beginning of, of what became a very prominent style in Europe for a long time and became the, the kind of the foundation for, again, the modern warfare. Well, and what's fun is, especially with this style, you it you can literally watch where it started being traditional. I'm not medieval is not accurate, but close combat knight style. And when it ends, it is early modern. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think we just uh, kind of like dive right in real quick. Gonzalo Fernandez de Cordoba who lived from 1453 to 1515. He is the father of the pike and shot uh, idea. And what we're talking about when we're saying pike and shot, because we keep saying this, and if you don't know what we're talking about, it just it's, it sounds like gibberish. It's literally a mix of pikes and an early firearm of some sort. So we're talking early muskets or early arquebuses, all mixed together. And so the kind of the idea of it is that you've got the very defensive formation, because at this time, cavalry was extremely prominent. The Spanish had lost recently to the French, and uh, the, the tactics that the French were using were fairly conventional at the time. French were dominating during this time. Yeah. If we're being honest. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and in particular, they had a, like a heavy knight presence or like a, a professional version of the knight called a gendarme, I believe. Um, yeah, it's basically the modern defin- the modern word that's close to it would be gendarme, which is you know the French word for police. Right, 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 right. But it was like a professional medieval yeah, knight. The, yeah, the gendarme are, I'm, I'm sorry, every French person that just cried at hearing my pronunciation <laughs> there. I, Neither of us are getting it I right. took French. I loved French, but my pronunciation was terrible. Was basically a mercenary knight. Yep. A, in Japan, Ronin might have been a, a applicable term. But uh, like a professional heavy cav is what you're thinking yeah. here. Um, and then also very popular in this time was, like you were saying, the, the Swiss Landschnecht. Am I saying that right? Landschnecht? I have no idea. I love them. They look insane. And then heavy artillery were also coming into prominence at this time, too. So you had this mix of really heavy cav, a strong defensive pike force or, or a, a halberd force, and then heavy artillery supplying just massive bombardment. And then mixed in there a little bit, just because these people are awesome, were people wielding Zweihanders, which would have been too big two-handed swords and their job was literally to cut the tips off the pikes of the enemy pikemen of the jobs to have in an army pretty pretty min max like if you if you get it wrong there's a reason (laughs) they got double pay to every other person on the army yeah no doubt no doubt Uh, that'd be kind of hard and i i wanted to mention them because they are mentioned in some of the early versions of this combat style of of this uh pike and shots Mm -hmm. but they're not and they're cool but they're not as important Right. They're important enough to mention, but not that they're going to come up a ton. Because again, this tactic, this idea of using pike and shot is is really simple. The idea is that your your firearms are able to maneuver around and get the shots that they need. And then when they need to, they retreat into the relative safety of the pikemen. It's not a very quick formation. We're not we're not uh, beating a whole lot of feet with this particular formation, especially at the beginning of it. But it was a very good defensive formation against especially a heavy cav army, which was very popular at the time. And you saw a very good success with this in the Italian wars that took place after he, he developed this idea. And the and the, the ratio you were looking for is about one to one. And again, that would that would change as people were getting injured or dying as the army was changing in size, but they, they really tried to keep this one to one ratio of pikemen to these like musketmen. Up against French armies, this was a killing field. This was oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Because they were primarily cavalry and they were up against ranged and pikemen. And those are the two things cavalry is worst at. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, especially as we moved on into the 16th century. So as this moved into its next era of development and Spain and the imperial armies were experimenting more with it, you started to see more of a tertio emerge. And this is really where the French got outmatched because in the tertio, you had it, it was actually a, a third and a third and a third. So you had a third swordsman, a third pikeman, and a third of some sort of firearm. And so this was a, it was a very, a very cumbersome it was a very large formation and it was very unwieldy, but it was, you couldn't surround it because you had melee people in every direction. And then if, while the pikemen were keeping people at bay, you were being shot at. And so at this time, the, the French fell really far behind because they were late to the firearms game. Yeah, they were not good at gunpowder until, I mean, they got really good around Napoleon, but before that they were okay. Yeah, with the development of Le Grand Armée, it was a totally different story. But at this point, they found themselves behind the curve because this conventional warfare that they had been using had worked so well, they were loath to change it. They'd, they'd set their entire military structure around it. And with how good the rest of the continent was doing, how good the Dutch and the Spanish and the Italians were doing at this point, being okay was bad. Oh yeah, yeah, everything was, especially with something new and dynamic like fire, like uh, uh, gunpowder. Uh, again, firearms being widely available at this time and being developed in different ways. Because again, there, there was no real standardized firearm at this point. Like you said, you had muskets, you had arquebuses of varying size and lengths and calibers. Like it was all kind of haphazard. And so I, it's funny you mentioned the Dutch because they actually made a huge contribution to this tactic by making it standardized. They standardized the drill for it. They standardized the weapon calibers and they standardized pike lengths. And they, and so they, and then they made the units smaller and more flexible. And so the Dutch contributions to this style were huge. And, and they saw really good successes after, after this, because that, that the cumbersome nature of it, especially to st students of modern arm, like military tactics, it's like that, that doesn't seem like it'd be very effective. But when you, again, when you're thinking about the sheer number of cav that was popular at this time, having a very defensive formation wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing at all. Well, and you're talking about a formation that's not trying to move much. If you're trying to run with this, you're dead. But if you just need to hold a spot, this is a great move. Absolutely. Back then. Back then. Back then, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and, and before we continue with the developments, I wanted to say that, like, in terms of 40K, you can see that when you mix your units together, obviously you, you can't physically mix your units together because units have to kind of remain pure as they are, but you can place them close to each other. Like I had said before, when I'm doing ADMEC, I want to have at least some melee in my army to make up for the fact that I'm such a long-range force. That's the same kind of idea here. You're not, you want to maintain your range while not sacrificing your defense. And in Belagarth, we don't have uh, firearms, obviously, in, in things like SCA or Ampgard or Belagarth, but what we do have are archers. And so the idea here would be to have a unit that would be comprised of like a third swordsman, a third pikeman, and a third archers that moves around uh, together in a very organized formation, I suppose. That is a ton of archers for a Belagarth field. It is. But if you had enough people, it could be extremely effective. Especially when we talk about the next development that took place for the pike and shot technique. And this is what I was thinking when I'm thinking about the applications for physical wargaming is the contributions of the Swedish to this idea. Because the Swedes introduced the concept of volley fire. Now again, to us modern stu students of uh, military science, volley fire is how you use early firearms. Like Revolutionary War, Civil War time frame, like these 
these massed volley fire scenarios are the best way to use it. But that wasn't uh, known early on. Yeah, these were the first people to really do that, at least in Europe. I don't know. It could be different in Asia. China had completely different relationship with black powder than we did. They did. They also used it in very different ways militarily than we ended up using it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the Swedes, this volley fire was huge because, again, you, you think about how inaccurate and the damage potential of these early firearms wasn't that high. You would likely survive getting shot in most cases, unless it was to the head, like a direct head shot, you were down. Direct heart shot, you were down. But these early bullets and these early firearms were not that lethal. How much more lethal they became when everybody fired in the same direction at the same time. Suddenly you had a shredding power into the air of all these musket balls moving through it. And this gave it a huge edge. The other thing the Swedes did was they included small infantry guns, so like uh, smaller versions of artillery with the pike and shot units so that they were more mobile and so that there wasn't like a set artillery place where there that was. Remember, Machiavelli kind of recommended this too. And it was definitely developed later by the, the French. Uh, if you think about the Napoleon Le Grand Armée setup, the same idea was used there as well, like keeping the artillery in the unit itself to make it even more flexible. And what this did was gave it an emphasis on firepower and also on independence, which was huge. Yeah. And then over time, that thought process. That was probably the biggest development that came was that, that concept of volley fire. And it's something I want to try in Bellegarth. Like, I really want to try to, like, really drill some volley fire. We, we've talked about it a little bit with javelins, where 10 javelins get thrown at one time. People have to stop and deal with that as opposed right. to just a javelin coming at you. <laughs> I'm making the hand throwing I can't even see because you now, obviously man. people can see what I'm doing. Yeah, I know. I am just, I am lost without an audience, apparently. With back to pike and shot, over time, it kind of wore itself out as weapons got better, as the muskets became more of a thing. The pikemen stopped existing because if you can just put a big blade on the front of your musket, you now have a pike and a gun at the same time. So you didn't really need both of them anymore. That's right. Guardsmen rejoice because what brought us out of the pike and shot age was the bayonet. And then over time, they got, instead of this like really thick, dense square, it got thinner and wider until it eventually just sort of evolved into what we think of as early modern warfare, what we think of as the Revolutionary War. You know, two lines walk up, fire, first line like drops down, reloads, the second line fires, and again and again. It What Carl asked us, right, was like, what do we think of this combat style? I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, he, he was asking what we think about the effectiveness of it. And honestly, in, in terms of something like Belegarth, I've never seen it done to this extent, and I'd be eager to give it a try. I could see it working well in Belegarth. I have questions in 40k because it's a very a, a tech-based thing. Very tech-based, yeah. When it's not a bunch of artillery, I can see the very obvious advantages of it. When I was thinking of it from a horseman's point of view, I don't have a good answer to this. Right. But yeah, I could I could definitely see it in physical wargaming for sure. If I have muskets or if I have regular cannons like of real amounts, God forbid I have rifling. That was a serious development. The killing field against it just becomes a killing field in it. it there'd be like if they tried this in the Civil War. Yeah, it would have been done. The, the emphasis, especially against Lee, somebody who, who had so much speed and so much flexibility when it came to his maneuver. Yeah, Pike and Shot would not have worked well against that. Not at all. The thing I learned about the Civil War today, just thinking of this as a combination that I just love. The Pike and Shot tactic ended somewhere around 1700, 1720, really when the Pikes stopped being used. Mm-hmm. 
1862, Lee tried to bring pikemen into the Confederate Army in the Civil War. <laughs> that is 150 years later, and Lee, and I, can't, I have no idea what his reasoning is here. For obvious reasons, it didn't happen. But he's like, you know what would be great? Spears. I'm so glad. Sure, you have Gatling guns. That, did, that, that was a good thing that he did not follow through on that plan because, uh, yeah, I don't think it would have worked the way that he wanted it to. Because Jesus... But yeah, so that's that's Mike and Shot. Thank you again, Carl Johnson, for writing in. We thought that was an interesting question, so we definitely wanted to explore it on the show. And if anybody else has uh, questions for us, you can reach us at artofwargaming at gmail.com. Trying to keep up with the Instagram and put out some cool memes, little interesting tidbits and that sort of thing. And our Instagram is Art of Wargaming Podcast. We also on Facebook, The Art of Wargaming. You can find us. We got a nice picture up there. And then we also have a website now, taowargaming.com. The other Earworm productions are also good. You got General Nerdery and Fried Squirms over there putting out their good stuff. And we have more stuff coming down the pipe. It's just you know, time, but we'll get there. And we'll get through this together. We're going to get through all this together. We know again that it's a, a scary time for everybody filled with uncertainty, but if we stick together and look after one another, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine. And on that note, we have finished Machiavelli. We have, we have. And so uh, what we're going to be doing from here on out is uh, we're going to take a, a week off to kind of collect our thoughts and get together on the next book, which is going to be the instructions of Federal Great to his generals. So we're looking forward to that one. Kind of a continuation of this same idea idea very same era of where we literally ended this with this, this part yeah so very topical for for kind of what we're talking about uh but between there and then we're going to be talking about the klingons so the next episode you're going to see from us is kind of a special episode yeah, a special episode just just to talk a little bit about the klingon book of war so if you're interested in the klingons and you want to hear about how their their tactics actually apply to real military science we're going to do a little fun episode on that but then after that a week or two later we will be back with the instructions of federal frederick the great to his general we're not entirely certain up front how long this break is going to be. We will get back to you. We will keep you up to date. It won't be long, especially with everyone quarantining right now. Everyone I know that plays Belagarth is just really wanting more Belagarth stuff. So we want to give that to you. But we also want to make sure that we are giving you the best product we can. We do. We don't want to just be putting stuff out there because there's a good opportunity right now. Because there is. I mean, the, a lot of people indoors right now. And that's, that's you know, a, a lot of people aren't accustomed to that. And so we want to make sure that anybody who is wanting to to get entertainment from our product gets it but that also means that we need to be putting out a good product so we don't want to rush this we don't want to put anything out there that isn't going to add to your wargaming experience so we appreciate your patience over the next few weeks as we get our new notes in order yeah we'll be we'll be back shortly with some klingons and then after that we'll be back to talk about the uh instructions of frederick the great to his generals so i guess thank you and thank oni and thank really you guys who are listening to us because you're giving us an excuse to do this thing i appreciate you so much absolutely and and in the same vein thank you thumbs for for making the effort to talk to me from across town and continue putting this show out thank you oni for all your hard work thank you especially to yui and anya for making sure that we don't sound like complete tools on the air and and thank you again to the listeners for your engagement for your support for even just listening to us yeah so until next time i think uh this has been yaga malark and i'm thumbs signing off
I am your father.'